We're going to be in Revelation chapter 10. If you want to open your Bibles to that spot, we're going to bounce around some other places before we get back to Revelation 10. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, but I believe it's good ground. I really do. I want you to also know that I approached this at the beginning of the week from three different angles. I read from the New International Version, the passage that Beth read for us just a few minutes ago, and after I had finished, I asked this question, how should I preach this passage? Then I opened up to the New American Standard Version of the Bible, I read it out of there, and I asked that same question, how should I preach this passage? Then I read it from the message and asked the exact same question, how should I preach this passage? And here's what I arrived at, I shouldn't. This passage is very difficult to preach, rather than preaching it, We should just teach it. So that's what we're going to do. There is a difference between preaching and teaching. Normally, I am more of a preacher than I am a teacher. But today, I'm going to do a lot of teaching. You're going to have to listen fast because we are going to cover ground at warp speed. And you're going to have to stay with me as we go through it. But hopefully at the end of it, it's going to make sense to you. Before we get to Revelation chapter 10, though, I want to share an article with you that I read off of the internet in a few different places this past week. Now, you you should know that I'm kind of annoyed by this article. No, I'm not kind of annoyed. I'm really annoyed by this article. And I've been annoyed every time I have opened up newspapers on the internet for the past week and a half. One of the things that is really bothering me right now is the death of a United States ambassador on Muslim soil and some Navy SEALs that died trying to protect him. I am outraged by this whole thing and the fact that it is being covered up, really covered up, under the guise of religious aggression based on a 12-minute YouTube video produced by some fool in Florida. Now that has become reason for all of this stuff to be happening and I don't buy into it at all and I am really appalled by what's going on. But we don't have enough time to talk about that today. So the other thing that's bothering me is an article that I first saw on one of the newspapers and then saw it show up in three other places. I want to share it with you this morning. It is kind of long, so stay with me as we go through it. We're going to take some breaks. The title of it is this. Will science someday rule out the possibility of God? Did anybody else see this article this past week? A few of you did, a few did in first service, and a few did last night. Well, I'm going to share it all with you. Here we go. Over the past few centuries... Science can be said to have gradually chipped away at the traditional grounds for believing in God. Much of what once seemed mysterious, the existence of humanity, the life-bearing perfection of earth, the workings of the universe, can now be explained by biology, astronomy, physics, and other domains of science. Now I want to stop there real fast. You have heard me say repeatedly, if you've worshipped with us very long, that I believe that there is a place for the blending of our relationship with God with the scientific realms. I really do. But what happens most of the time is people from the realm of science will set about to try to disprove the existence of the Lord or try to disprove the Bible. If they would simply reverse that process, what they would find over and over and over again is that the Bible proves science. When you use science to try to prove the Bible, you can always make it sound as if there is no God and there is no creator. But when you turn that upside down and you use the Bible to prove science, you can begin to really find the answers that society and and people in general have been looking for for a long, long time. 
I am instantly bothered by this article because of the declaration that cosmology, physics, biology, all these different realms of science are actually going to disprove the existence of God. Turn it upside down and we would actually be able to blend everything. Although cosmic mysteries remain, Sean Carroll, a theoretical cosmologist at the California Institute of Technology, says there's good reason to think science will ultimately arrive at a complete understanding of the universe that leaves no grounds for God whatsoever. Carroll argues that God's sphere of influence has shrunk drastically in modern times as physics and cosmology have expanded in their ability to explain the origin and evolution of the universe. As we learn more about the universe, there's less and less need to look outside it for help, he told Life's Little Mysteries. He thinks the sphere of supernatural influence will eventually shrink to nil. But could science really eventually explain everything? Now there's a new heading in the article called Beginning of Time. Gobs of evidence have been collected in favor of the Big Bang model of cosmology, or the notion that the universe expanded from a hot, infinitely dense state to its current cooler, more expansive state over the course of 13.7 billion years. Now I want to stop right there again. I know that some of you will disagree with this statement, and as I always tell you, you are free to be wrong, so hold on to your opinion as you want, as long as you want. Biblical history teaches us that the age of the earth is only a hair over 6,000 years. When people start talking about 13.7 billion years and the millions and millions of years ago that this happened, it instantly causes me to say, well, that's just a bunch of baloney because the earth is only just a hair over 6,000 years old. The discrepancy might come based on how long Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden before the fall of man. So from creation to the fall, we don't know how long that is. From that point forward, the Bible is the only accurate record in all of creation for the history of the world. And that history says it's only about 6,000 years old. So you might say, well, what about evolution? What about icebergs? What about all this other kind of stuff? Well, here's what I believe about that. I do believe in a small fraction of evolution. Most of that deals with topography and geography. We are fully aware of the fact that the flow of water changes geography. You have probably seen that yourself. In the case of floodwaters, when it rises, it erodes away at things and changes topography. It changes geology. It changes geography. There's all kinds of things that happen. But in an interesting turn of events, things like the explosion of Mount St. Helens in Washington back in the 80s actually proves how rapid creation could happen using some of the created, meaning water flows and lava flows. There is at the base of Mount St. Helens today a museum called Creation Museum. It is worth the trip over there to talk with them and to see how in just a matter of hours you could see what scientists would tell you it would take millions of years to create if you bought in to all of their philosophies. 13.7 billion years does not match up with the record of the Bible. 6,000 years does. If you disagree with that, like I say, you're, you're free to be wrong. That's okay. And it really is not a test of fellowship in my estimation. It's just one of those things that I think we ought to grab hold of as an absolute truth if we're going to use the Bible to try to prove science. Moving on in the article, though. Cosmologists can model what happened from 0.43 seconds after the Big Bang until now. But the split second before that remains murky. 
Some theologians have tried to equate the moment of the Big Bang with the description of creation of the world found in the Bible and other religious texts. They argue that something, i.e. God, must have initiated the explosive event. However, in Carroll's opinion, progress in cosmology will eventually eliminate any perceived need for a Big Bang trigger puller. As he explained in a recent article in the Blackwell Companion to Science and Christianity, a foremost goal of modern physics is to formulate a working theory that describes the entire universe from subatomic to astronomical scales within a single framework. Such a theory called quantum gravity will necessarily account for what happened at the moment of the Big Bang. Some versions of quantum gravity theory that have been proposed by cosmologists predict that the Big Bang, rather than being the starting point of time, was just a transitional stage in an eternal universe, in Carroll's words. For example, one model holds that the universe acts like a balloon that inflates and deflates over and over under its own steam. If, in fact, time had no beginning, this shuts the book on Genesis. Other versions of quantum gravity theory currently being explored by cosmologists predict that time did start at the Big Bang, but these versions of events don't cast a role for God either. Not only do they describe the evolution of the universe since the Big Bang, but they also account for how time was able to get underway in the first place. As such, these quantum gravity theories still constitute complete self-contained descriptions of the history of the universe. Nothing in the fact that there is a first moment of time, in other words, necessitates that an external something is required to bring the universe about at that moment, Carroll wrote. Another way to put it, is that contemporary physics theories, though still under development and awaiting future experimental testing, are turning out to be capable of explaining why Big Bangs occur without the need for a supernatural jumpstart. As Alex Philip Akeno, an astrophysicist at the University of California, Berkeley, said in a conference talk earlier this year, the Big Bang could have occurred as a result of just the laws of physics being there. With the laws of physics, you can get universes. Now, I want to stop there for just a second. Are you catching what they're saying? They are putting forward not just one theory, but a series of theories that do not yet exist. They are putting forward something that they're hoping to see developed that is still not here, but they're calling that absolute truth that disproves the existence of God. A theory, a concept that disproves what you and I would accept as an absolute. Does that make any logical sense whatsoever? No, it doesn't. But we live in a, a day and an age of interactive newspapers. So if you were reading this article on the Huffington Post like I was, or you had gone to Yahoo or to USA Today, you could see the way people were responding to this. And they're responding very much in the positive. They're saying, finally, these are the answers that I've been looking for. Yes, I absolutely believe this. What they're saying is they believe in faith, they believe absolutely in a theory that does not exist. There is no logic, none whatsoever. But people are buying into it in exponential numbers. When they cannot explain God, when they cannot understand who he is, they will grab hold of anything at all. And that's what's going on here. Now, moving on. Within these theories is what they're referring to as parallel universes. But there are other potential grounds for God. Physicists have observed that many of the physical constants that define our universe, from the mass of the electron to the density of dark energy, are eerily perfect for supporting life. Alter one of these constants by a hair and the universe becomes unrecognizable. 
For example, if the mass of the neutron were a bit larger in comparison to the mass of the proton, then its actual value, hydrogen, would not fuse into deuteronium and conventional stars would be impossible, Carroll said. And thus, so would life as we know it. Theologians often seize upon the so-called fine-tuning of the physical constants as evidence that God must have had a hand in them. It seems that he chose the constants just for us, but contemporary physics, physics explains our seemingly supernatural good luck in a different way. Some versions of quantum gravity theory, including string theory, predict that our life-giving universe is but one of an infinite number of universes that altogether make up the multiverse. Among these infinite universes, the full range of values of all the physical constants are represented, and only some of the universes have values for the constants that enable the formation of stars, planets, and life as we know it. We find ourselves in one of the lucky universes, because where else would we be? Some theologians counter that it is far simpler to invoke God than to postulate the existence of infinitely many universes in order to explain our universe's life-giving perfection. To them, Carroll retorts that the multiverse wasn't postulated as a complicated way to explain fine-tuning. On the contrary, it follows as a natural consequence of our best, most elegant theories. Once again, if or when these theories prove correct, a multiverse happens, whether you like it or not, he wrote, and there goes God's hand in things. Now let's stop right here. And I'm really annoyed at this point. So just so you understand my emotion. Theology is the study of God. It is the study of the existence of God. Cosmology is the study of the stars. Astronomy is the study of stars. Physics is the study of things I don't even come close to understanding. Biology is the study of the human being and of life. There is a place to combine all of those things. But what's happened in here is they found a group of people that refer to themselves as theologians, experts on the study of God. Yet these experts would go so far as to say that all God did in the realm of creation was fine-tune what was already there after the Big Bang. Those are not theologians at all. Those are not people that should call themselves students of God or scholars of the things of God. Those are confused individuals that somehow found some place that would give them a degree. That's all it is. They are messed up in their thinking because they do not hold to the Bible as an absolute. If you hold to the Bible as an absolute, then here's what you know. God created the heavens and the earth. It took seven days to accomplish, seven literal days. And all God needed to do it was his voice. He spoke it into existence. Amen? That is not a theory, folks. That is the truth of the Bible. So they're trying to put forward, even these theologians in their confusion are trying to put forward the Bible as a theory that it might mix with these other confused theories. And when that happens, all we do is add more confusion to the mix. God is the creator of the universe. And if we cannot accept that, there is no study of his existence. There is no explanation for why he's there. There is no explanation of a relationship that we can have with him. The article ends this way, the reason why. Another role for God is a raison d'etre, that's French, I think, for the universe. Even if cosmologists manage to explain how the universe began and why it seems so fine-tuned for life, the question might remain why there is something as opposed to nothing. To many people, the answer to the question is God. According to Carroll, this answer pales under scrutiny. There can be no answer to such a question, he says. 
Most scientists suspect that the search for ultimate explanations eventually terminates in some final theory of the world, along with the phrase, that's just how it is, Carroll wrote. People who find this unsatisfying are failing to treat the entire universe as something unique, something for which a different set of standards is appropriate. A complete scientific theory that accounts for everything in the universe doesn't need an external explanation in the same way that specific things within the universe need external explanations. In fact, Carroll argues, wrapping another layer of explanation, i.e. God, around a self-contained theory of everything would just be an unnecessary complication. The theory already works without God. Judged by the standards of any other scientific theory, the God hypothesis does not do very well, Carroll argues, but he grants that the idea of God has functions other than those of a scientific hypothesis. Follow what he's saying. He's calling God a hypothesis, a theory. And he says that the seven literal days of creation and the understanding of the beginning of time and a creator that spoke it all into existence makes less sense than saying that we are just lucky that some way we found ourselves in the lucky universe that is surrounded by all of these other universes that exist within what they are referring to as the multiverse, which they cannot yet prove. Does it make sense? No, it doesn't. People have been buying into this deception for a long time. Judged by the standards of any other scientific theory, the God hypothesis does not do very well, Carl argues, but he grants that the idea of God has functions other than those of the scientific, scientific hypothesis. Psychology research suggests that belief in the supernatural acts as a societal glue and motivates people to follow the rules. Further, belief in the afterlife helps people grieve and staves off fears of death. We're not designed at the level of theoretical physics, Daniel Kruger, an evolutionary psychologist at the University of Michigan, told Live Science last year. What matters to most people is what happens at the human scale, relationships to other people, things we experience in a lifetime. And that's the end of the article. And I have been waiting through three sermons to do this. I really have. The problem with all of that is this. They're saying that it is easier to believe in nothing than it is to believe in something. That is so messed up, so messed up. When we can put forward that the Bible is the authority that we hold to and God is the creator of the universe, then we don't have these struggles. We don't have to grasp for all these different theories that maybe someday will be proved that we can hold on to. We can hold on to a relationship with God. We really can if we understand who he is. So I read things like that. And I find myself in agreement with different biblical writers. Ones like the psalmist who says things like this in Psalm chapter 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Habakkuk would say this in Habakkuk chapter 1. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Even the tribulation saints, those that would give their lives to Jesus Christ at the beginning of the seven-year period of the tribulation in chapter 6, would cry out to God with words like this. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge your blood? 
in every one of those situations, you have biblical writers that are asking this question, God, how long will you remain silent? How long will you let articles like this be written and not respond to it and not prove over and over and over again that you are who you say you are? I find myself in good company when I ask that same question. God, how long will you remain silent? In order to understand that, though, we need to go on a little exploration of world history. So I want to do that, and we are going to do it really fast. So stay with me as we go through it. Again, I know that we're going long today, so just hang with me. But we're going to do this rapidly. If you want to understand history in terms of God, then what you have to know is that in the beginning, God's design was that he would have face-to-face communion and communication with all of his people. That's the way it worked in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve walked with God, talked with God. They saw him face-to-face, and they had perfect communion with one another. Then Satan entered the scene. He brought in this deception. They could be like God. God was no better than them. They didn't have to believe in God as a supreme creator. They could be just like him. All they needed to do was eat of this fruit. They bought into it. People have bought into it ever since. You could be like God. You don't have to accept God as being a supreme being. You can be like him. Some religions teach that you can be a God just like God. As a result of that sin, God said, I'm not going to abide this any longer. And so face-to-face communication with the Lord stopped. He put Adam and Eve out of the garden. And from that point forward, that type of relationship came to an end. Then God started to talk through very specific men. And he only talked to specific men. It wasn't in a broad, general sense. It was just specific individuals. People like Noah. People like Abraham. People like Moses. They received messages from God. Oftentimes, those were messages of judgment. In Noah's case, he was told to build the ark because God was going to destroy the world. Abraham received communication from God that told him about the covenant agreement that he would make with all of the Jewish people. Moses was told to lead the children of Israel out of captivity in Egypt and into the promised land. That was specific communication given to each of those individuals. Through Moses, the world received God's word. It was called the law. There was a period of time where the law governed everything. It was perfect with this exception. There was no grace in it. Without grace, it was impossible for anyone to really walk closely with the Lord. So the law failed. It didn't work for us to have communion with God and that type of connection. That ushered in a a period of time known as the time of the prophets. People like Elijah and Elisha, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, you can read their books in the Old Testament where God's men in those moments, God spoke through them, oftentimes bringing a message of judgment. Now, for the most part, the prophets spoke only to the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. Those were God's children. The prophets spoke to them, but it didn't do any good. Nobody repented. Nobody lived the way God was telling them to live. So that brought about what is referred to as the intertestamental period. It was a period of silence on God's behalf. lasted for 400 years. I want to show it to you in the Bible. Go to the book of Matthew with me, to the first chapter. When you get there, I want you to keep your finger at that spot, but turn back to the left, to the Old Testament book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. When you get there, put a finger in Malachi. So you've got one finger at Matthew, one finger in Malachi. And then do this for me. Just hold your Bible up just like this. 
could just hold your Bible up just like this. There you go. And now, holding your Bible up like that, grab those pages that stand between Malachi and Matthew. You're holding them just like this. That's the intertestamental period. From Malachi to Matthew, it represents 400 years of silence on God's behalf. 400 years where God wasn't saying anything to anybody or through anybody. God was literally silent. During those 400 years, the Jews began to progress away from a relationship with God. Even the Messiah that they had been waiting for and looking for, they gave up. They just gave up. Then in the book of Matthew, God began to speak again. This time through a prophet named John the Baptist, who introduced the coming Messiah, whose name was Jesus. Wow, like three people know. That, that was a bad test. John the Baptist introduced who? Jesus. To the world. And then Jesus began to speak. He recruited 12 apostles to surround him. There were many other disciples, many other people that saw Jesus, but the 12 apostles were given a specific job. After the ascension of Jesus into heaven, the apostles were to spread the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they did it. They did it in person and they did it in writing. When the apostles died, all 12 of them were gone. It brought an end to what is known as the apostolic age. At that moment, God began to speak through the letters, the writings of the apostles that we have in the New Testament today. In the year 300 AD, all of those letters were put together in what we refer to as the canonized Bible. The church age was ushered in. God was now speaking through the Bible and through the church. And if people want to know who God is, then it is imperative for them to get to know the Bible. It's imperative for them to listen to his words that are recorded right here. We are still living in the church age. This is how God is speaking. But today, just like in every other period, there's a number of people that are saying that isn't good enough. We want to see more. We want to know more. God, show us more of yourselves. It happened even during the days of Jesus. This is in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That's how it will be with this wicked generation. Jesus said, you either accept in faith or you don't. If you don't, perpetually asking for another sign will never be good enough. You will receive it, and then you will want another. And you will receive it, and then you will want another. There's a point where you have to say, I have experienced the faithfulness of God and that is all I need. That is all I need. That is the birthplace of a relationship with the Lord. And it comes through His Son, Jesus Christ. When we accept that, the other questions that we have begin to be completed with answers. 
And a lot of those answers come out of this birthplace of faith. Now, we just covered 6,000 years of history of God's communication with people. I want us to switch gears and talk about four years that are yet to come. That's what Revelation chapter 10 is dealing with. So if you want to go back there, you can just leave your Bible open to Revelation chapter 10. These four years are tucked away in the midst of what we're referring to as the seven-year tribulation period. They are prophetic years. They have not happened yet. They are still coming. They begin right after an unbelievable worldwide event that the Bible does not call the rapture, but the principle of the rapture is there, the teaching of the rapture is there. That is the catching up of the church. Christians are taken to be with the Lord in heaven, and we believe that with all we have and all that we are. Jesus Christ is coming back for his church. The church is out of here. After the church leaves, then this seven-year tribulation period begins. We introduced to you a few weeks ago a global person that carries the name Antichrist in the Bible. He is an imposter. He's one who would try to be like the Lord, but he fails at every attempt. He comes bringing a message of peace. In fact, it is a very specific message of peace for the Middle East. You can boil it down more than just the Middle East. He brings a message of peace for the nation of Israel. As you're watching things happen today, you know that Israel is in great turmoil. You pay close attention to that. You pay close attention to who's getting involved with the things of Israel. It is fascinating to watch when you lay it over the pages of biblical prophecy. So the Antichrist comes preaching a message of peace and salvation, and people buy into it. They really do. For three and a half years, they buy into it. Even in the face of cataclysmic disasters... We read a a few weeks ago and studied the seals that would be broken when Jesus grabs hold of the scroll and he opens up that scroll. Those seals all represented amazing judgments of God. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people will lose their lives during those judgments. Last week, Dini talked you through the trumpet judgments with the sounding of the first six trumpets. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people will lose their lives in the judgments of God during this seven-year tribulation period. All of that's going on as people continue to put their hope in this character known as the Antichrist. But after three and a half years, it all changes. Everything changes. You want to know why? Because God breaks his silence. God's about to speak. And Revelation chapter 10 is the record of it. It's pretty cool. Go through this with me real quick. Just look at how this starts out. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. People have debated and fought over who this angel was for a long, long time. I have three commentators that I'm following through this study of Revelation. Two of them agree with me on who this angel is. That is John MacArthur and J. Vernon McGee. They would say in in total faith and, and total trust that this angel was an angel, a mighty angel, because that's what the Bible says, another mighty angel. And I don't believe we need to try to spiritualize it, but there are people that have. They have tried to say that this is Jesus Christ. Now, here's one of the problems with that, and it's only one problem. Jesus only appears in angelic form in the Old Testament, and every time that he does, he is referred to as the angel of the Lord. He never appears in angelic form in the New Testament. There's no reason for it. 
Based solely on that, I look at this and say, this is a mighty angel. Now, no question about it, his appearance is different. He is clothed in the clouds. The clouds are always symbolic of the judgment of God. He had a rainbow above his head. The rainbow stands as a symbol of God's covenant with his children. You know where the rainbow came from back in Genesis chapter 6 and the flood. It shows up in other places. In fact, we showed you a rainbow in Revelation chapter 4 that surrounds the very throne of God. So this angel has a rainbow over his head showing God's covenant with his people. Then we, we read about... His face like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. That's terminology that comes from Revelation chapter 1, talking about who Jesus Christ is. So this angel is an angel representing the Lord, representing Jesus Christ. Move on with me. Verse 2. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. There are some people that believe that when he planted his right foot in the sea, that means only the Mediterranean Sea because that's off the coast of Israel. I'm not one of those people. I think when he planted his foot in the sea, John saw this angel plant his foot in the depths of the deepest part of the sea. And then he put his left foot on dry ground. This was a mighty angel. But you know what happened in that moment? If he is a representative of the holy God, it was as if he took a flag and stuck it in the ground and said, I am here representing the creator of the universe. And I am representing the creator of all that there is in the oceans and on the land and in the air. That's going to come back up in just a minute. This mighty angel had a purpose and it was to break the silence of God. Listen to how that happens. Verse 3. He gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. Even back in the Old Testament, as you dealt with prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Hosea, they would speak of the voice of the Lord sounding like the roar of a lion, particularly where it is attached to prophetic teaching. When God speaks judgment, he speaks it with a roar, just like a lion. Now, that doesn't mean that there was anything audible in it. God just got everybody's attention. Now the angel has roared, everybody is listening, and the voice of the seven thunders is about to speak. Seven is a number of completion in the Bible. Thunders represent the voice of God. The seven thunders are about to speak. You want to know what they said? Here it is, verse 4. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. You want to know what he said? So do I. I I wish we knew. God spoke and then he said, you seal it up. John, I don't want anybody to read this. I don't want anybody to hear it. That's very curious because in the beginning of the book of Revelation, the Lord said to John, you write down what you see so that everybody can see it. At the end of the book of Revelation, God will say to John, don't seal up this book. You leave it open so that everybody can see it. This is the only account in the book of Revelation of anything being hidden from our sight or being sealed up. And God said, they're not ready. He said the same thing to Daniel, speaking about these exact events. There is a point where God said to Daniel and through Daniel, it's in the last chapter of the book of Daniel, you seal this up. You don't let anybody see it. He would tell Ezekiel, you seal it up, speaking of the same events. I cannot help but imagine that Daniel and Ezekiel and John saw the same thing. In my own speculation, and that's all this is, I think that what was sealed up was a judgment that is too much for us. 
Think about what we've already seen in the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. All of those different things. Man, that's devastation, but this is too much. Obviously, it involves what John would refer to as the mysteries of God, and that may very well be how God brings the Jews and the Gentiles together in the kingdom of heaven. That could be one of the great mysteries that John saw, but this was too much. God said, seal it up. Don't let anybody see it. Don't let anybody look upon this. This, John, is just for you. We'll find out later what that was. That later means when all of this is unfolded or we're in heaven, that's it. Cool thing, by the way, is as we're going through the tribulation, God's people, His church, His children are already out of here. We're in heaven watching it all happen in high def. Man, that failed last night too. Failed in first service. I don't understand it. Verse 5 now. The angel that I, I had seen standing on the land, or on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. You want to know who these people, who these people are looking for? It's this God right here. This God. And John says, He who created the sea and all that is in them, He who created the earth and all that is on it, He that created the heavens and all that is in them, He is the one that is about to speak. He is the one that is taking care of all of this. God just broke His silence and He told everybody who He is. God answered that question for all of mankind right there. It is amazing to me, absolutely amazing to me, that there are still people at this point in Revelation chapter 10 in the seven-year tribulation period that still don't believe in God, that still don't believe in Jesus Christ. Think about it. The church is gone. That should have been enough to make some people go, whoa, that's very strange. They went through the sealed judgments and multitudes of people lost their lives. People should have said, I remember something from Sunday school about this. When the trumpet sounded, you'd have thought people were paying attention. You know what a lot of people are going to attribute it to? And I believe this with all that I have. They're going to think aliens were involved. That's really it. Here's another article for you that was in the newspapers this past week. It's kind of funny to me. This fellow was diving somewhere in the oceans and he found what he believed was the equivalent of an underwater crop circle. It was huge, intricate. He took pictures of it. It's absolutely gorgeous. This intricate thing in the middle of the ocean floor in the sand that he could not explain. He got people all hot and bothered about it and said, aliens have come and they, one of their ships landed in the ocean and they left this circle there and that's what this was. And then marine biologists got involved in it and what they discovered was this. This is just funny. It was created by a giant puffer fish. That's where your crop circle came from, a puffer fish. I think God was in heaven going, that's right. And I also think God was saying, sometimes those fish do things like that just for my glory. Nobody else was ever intended to see it. That's for my glory. I get to look down there and see that. And that doesn't have anything to do with you. If you stumble across it, appreciate it for what it is. The time will come when people will say aliens were involved when the truth is the creator of the heavens is sitting on his throne and judgment is there with him. Back in the book of Acts, chapter 17, the apostle Paul would deal with this exact same thing with a group of Romans. This is verse 22 of chapter 17. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, 
I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. Like the psalmist and the prophet Hosea and the tribulation saints, myself and a number of other people, when we read articles like what we read at the beginning and we ask, how long, God, how long are you going to let this happen? How long are you going to stay silent? Paul gives us the answer. He allows things like that to happen so that men will seek him and they will find him. That's why God's silent. That's why he's letting people explore things like this. But when the time is right, and Paul said, when the time is right, God will break his silence. In Revelation chapter 10, that's exactly what he's doing. He has broken his silence. He has declared who he is. And there are great judgments coming. It is easier to read articles like that and say God's timing is perfect and he is holding off until the time is right that others might come to know him. If that's the reason, God, remain silent. If that's the reason, Lord, keep this whole thing going. As much as it's offensive to me, Lord, and as much as I feel like I need to defend you, you don't need my defense. You are God. So I trust you. And I place my hope in you. And I will wait. Go back to Revelation 10 with me as we close this out. John has seen all of this now. Verse 8 says, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. Every time you see that type of terminology in the Bible, it is descriptive of taking the word of God and making it so much a part of you that you eat it. There are different people that have been commanded to do that. Ezekiel was commanded to do that. Jeremiah was commanded to do that. And now John is commanded to do that, to take it and to physically eat it. Take it in and let it become a part of you that you might be able to give it away. Jeremiah chapter 15 verse 16 talks about that very thing. Take a look at it sometime. Moving on though, listen to what he says. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And here's what all of that means. The Word of God, particularly with these types of of passages, is bittersweet. When you take it into your mouth, it tastes sweet as honey, John, but when you really think about it, it's bitter. It will turn your stomach bitter. The sweetness is there for every believer in Jesus Christ because of the longing to go home and and be with our Lord. Tina's grandfather, Les McClintock, lives in Council Grove, Kansas. He's 98 years old. In February, he'll be 99. Set a goal for himself a number of years ago to turn 100. I, I think maybe he's regretting that now. I really do. For as long as he lives, or has lived, Les has been a pillar of the church. Back in his 80s when he was young, I I said, Les, how long have you been a Christian? He and I were just talking one day. He thought about it for a while, and he said, 
I don't know, maybe 75 years. He was 82, 83 years old at that time. Been a Christian for as long as he could remember, and he has done great things in the church. He really has. When I call him a pillar of the church, he really has been a pillar of the church. But he has buried his wife. He has buried his brothers. He has buried the people that were closest to him. He has started to bury family members that it doesn't make any sense that he's burying them, and and at times it's just more than he can bear. A few years ago, he made this statement. I believe that God has forgotten me. You know what that means? It means he's ready to go home. He's ready to be with his Father in heaven. He's done what he needed to do here. God, come back and get me. That's the sweetness of a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the sweetness of the Word of God. Lord, I am ready. The bitter part, though, is this. For those of us that understand it, when all of this happens... In the book of Revelation, the judgments of God will be attached to it and millions of people will die in those judgments. They will lose their lives and they will lose their souls because they did not accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and in faith they did not cry out to him. That's the bitter part. The judgment of God is there. He is righteous and holy and he is just and when the time is right, he will judge. One of the misnomers is this. People get upset all the time saying, how could a loving God send somebody to hell? A loving God never will send anybody to hell, but a loving God will allow you to choose hell. That's the way that works. You can choose a relationship with Jesus Christ that ends in heaven, or you can choose hell. God doesn't send you there. You make a choice to go there. That's it. The bitter part of the judgments of God is hell and the millions of people that will be there. As you take it in and as you absorb it, that's what you see. Hopefully you found uh, an acknowledgement of who God is that helps answer some questions for you. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father in heaven, it's easy, just like the psalmist and just like some of the prophets, to say, how long will this go on? How long will you allow this to go on? Lord, we understand through the Apostle Paul, through the, the study of Scripture and knowing that your timing is always perfect, we understand that You'll allow it to go on as long as it needs to, that people will come to know you. Salvation is what's at stake. So, Father, I pray that it will happen. I pray that you will build within each one of us an urgency for that. As the time draws closer, Lord, make us serious as evangelists. Make us serious in sharing our faith, in confronting others with a relationship with you. Lord, make it in your timing, but make us serious about it. And then, Father, as we have been praying these past few weeks, I want to offer to you again, come, Lord Jesus, come, and come quickly. Amen.